0: Hey everybody, I thought I would let you know that we recorded this episode in late October and since then, the American Ornithological Society has announced plans to change all English bird names currently named after people within its geographic jurisdiction. So we actually do talk about bird names and bird club names in this episode, but I thought I'd give you a heads up that we will dive way more into this topic when we are all back together and recording future episodes. Enjoy! Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, everybody. We are Life List, a birding podcast. I'm George Armistead here with Molly Brown and Alvaro Jaramillo. Guys, how are you doing today?
2: Hello.
0: Hey, doing good. I, I jumped on and you all were both deep in conversation on different tabs talking about galls and it was fun to just <laughs> listen in a little bit.
1: <laughs> Alvaro was schooling me. He was schooling me on some stuff. It's good.
2: I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not sure I was schooling anybody. Just uh, I think it's that pre-gull season uh, emotion that yeah. that was taking us over, thinking about all the really boring looking brown gulls that we might see during the rest yeah. of the winter.
0: <laughs> Sounded like you were really feeling it.
2: Yeah, feeling the
1: gull emotion. The herring gulls are on the move here today. Seeing flocks.
2: That it, they, so they do move there, huh? Like in the in the east, sort of coastal areas, you do find like there's a migration. You have more in this in the winter than you have in the summer. Oh yeah, they, oh, Yeah. Oh, okay. Herring
1: gulls pretty much vanish from here in the summer, like along in Philadelphia oh, proper. Okay. I'm talking about, and even along the coast. There's there there's they nest, but. Um, the big numbers are in the winter.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I figured as much, but I didn't realize that they was so visible. Like
1: they migrate visibly along the Delaware river. Uh, now sometimes it's, Hmm. I should say sometimes they, it's very clear. They're just kind of wandering from roost to feeding area and just kind of being nomadic. But you see these kind of squadrons, um, They look like big brutes, you know, little, you know, motorcycle gangs. You wouldn't want to mess with them.
2: Uh, How about you, Molly? Do you get gull movements up where you are or just basically no gulls? as it work?
0: Well, ring-billed gulls will trigger a rare bird alert Mm -hmm. here for a good part of the year. Um, But, yeah, in the winter, it's the only time you would see herring gulls or some ring-billed gulls, like, period. So, as far as movement, I mean... Yes, it's movement, but it's just because we only have them in the winter. And yeah. um, for anything beyond that, it's typically dependent on what it's like on the Great Lakes and how far things are getting pushed down.
1: I remember being at New River Gorge in spring a couple of years ago and and like I think three or four times, I thought I was hearing laughing gulls way up high <laughs> overhead. Wow. And, and I was like, I wonder if there's like some little migrant flocks, laughing gulls, and they're just so high. Don't know.
0: Well, I <laughs> I don't know. Yeah.
2: You know how I a lot of people listen to music and the the music that really resonates with them is their teenager years of music. I think birders, if you've been birding for a long time, what's abundant or what you grew up as a birder thinking was truth is what you stay with, and to me, herring gull's one of those. like I in the Great Lakes, herring gulls are around all the time. there's herring gulls all the time, ringbill gulls all the time. Then now, here to see herring gulls as migrants that only come in in winter seems so wrong to me. <laughs> like they should be here all the time, but Western gull is our all the time goal, not herring, but um it's uh it's funny. And to think everybody grows up with a different reality of their birds. What moves in, what's common, what isn't. And then we kind of get stuck with that as you grow up as a birder, I think. Especially if you move.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I live close to where I grew up. So don't have that experience from moving. You know, one thing that I have loved my entire life, and I still, it just... (laughs) It really does move me. Is just watching a big flock of Canada geese fly by. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can never get over that. I <laughs> love I've seeing enjoyed them that the my move. whole life. Yeah. Okay. Good. I appreciate some validation. <laughs> well, especially now
1: that we've kind of got like the golf course ones that are just like, you know, they are they hardly ever move. And now every now right. and then, yeah, you see like we here we see like a flock going over and like right around now, like late October, November. You're like, these are real migrants.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're real wild ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my grandma always talks about like when they first started coming in and seeing them on the farm regularly, and now they're, they're we, there's a pond out there on my family's farm that they're in all year round and they nest and everything. But yeah, still love that feeling. And this time of year, I'm feeling it. it
2: he, what I thought was interesting was on in a in a meeting somewhere else. I was talking to Erica Knoll, who's a biologist, Canadian biologist, and. Canada geese came up and she said that some of the golf course park geese from cities in Ontario that have been tracked are going like north, basically to the sub Arctic to, to molt. And then they're coming back South. And I thought, wow, yeah. like even these things that we think of as like nearly feral are acting in a completely wild way at a certain time in their life. And that kind of blew my mind. I had no idea. Maybe I'm getting That's the so distances cool. wrong, but it's just the concept.
1: <laughs> it's like the migrant house finches we have in the east now. It's
2: like right. You just you can't take the bird out of the bird. That's right.
0: <laughs> well said.
2: Speaking of which, I've got this Cooper hawk right now. That's right behind my feeder. He's in the middle of the bushes. Like I, I've watched him slowly sneak in into the depth of of the bushes right 2 feet from the feeder and there's no bird around no no house finch but i think he's just going to sit there wait till it fills up and then try his luck
1: it's crafty little devils
2: i know oh now he's on the ground
1: hey do you guys know what my most recent yard bird is let me let me and tell a you no you do know what my latest yard bird is because you were there when i when i saw it Oh yeah, what what's that? I it was. What it, was. <laughs> it was. It was a it Nashville sure. warbler. A
2: Nashville. Oh
0: warbler. yeah,
1: man, I was excited about that. It's like right. we're yeah we were we were getting ready to record, and I'm like looking out the window and see some movement right in this flower you know this this perennial bed that we'd put in that I've been talking about all the time. And a uh, Nashville came into some goldenrod, started picking away for bugs. And I mean, it's kind of an overdue one for the, the yard list here, but hadn't yeah. had it before. You know, that was yeah, the first no, first new one that's I'd that's had cool. while we were on the on the call
2: on the call. Well, I had a new new yard bird yesterday, rose-breasted grosbeak, and it's been coming in just before this, before we started. So maybe it'll come in while I'm talking to you. To you all,
1: you're still trying to get your underwing shot.
2: I I just got one. Oh, you did! It looks rosy red, beauteous. Trying to trying to make sure it's not a hybrid. You know that's mm-hmm. you know, with the black black headed grosbeak, which does happen in the West. You know, east eastern folks never think about hybrid grosbeaks, but Western folks have to think about that.
1: <laughs> so I wanted to update you guys also on something that I have done in the yard here. Um, I feel like Molly will appreciate this in particular. Kristen has done a couple of forages for pawpaw. Ooh. Yeah. And she came home with like, I don't know, 20 pawpaw fruits. Only a couple of them were like, you know, ripe and and ready to eat. Um, The others were mostly past prime. Um, but we have planted like, I want to say like 50 seeds of pawpaws in different places. And we're trying to, we're trying to start a couple little pawpaw patches in the yard.
0: That's With, so much fun.
1: Yeah. Which I want to, I want, my goal is, it would take a couple years, obviously, for these to get going. We do have a couple little saplings that somebody gave us. Those might get going sooner. Uh-huh. But I'd like to get enough where we can make some pawpaw ice cream with maybe some heath bars. I think that'd be I think that'd be real, wow. real good. Yeah. That's,
0: that's an that's awesome whole, goal. I think so. That's really cool. Um I've got some pawpaws planted. And I got them from someone local here that was giving away some saplings, I think just last year. And he said that they like a lot of shade when they're young mm-hmm. and that they need full sun once they're established for a few years. So that ideally you're doing that. So I have got just four planted um but i've got just like shade cloth that's kind of you know stuck up on post that's shading them right now and i suppose in the next year or two i'll pull it out but yeah they seem to be doing well i love pawpaws
1: yeah me too
2: what is pawpaw exactly
1: it is north america's largest indigenous edible fruit
0: whoa way to be ready with that (laughs)
1: Well, it's such a cool thing it's it's in the soursop uh guanabana sweet sop family of uh of plant of plants and it's Gwanabana. the only one that's not tropical i think basically
2: guanabana guanabana ba, ba, <laughs> ba, ba, <laughs> we could go all day couldn't we <laughs> this is our new theme song <laughs> so it is it is basically like a tropical fruit that's gone temperate Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's and it's only in the southeast, right? So are you, are you sort of marginal? Like they get up to Ontario.
1: Um, so yeah, it's sort of that eastern. I feel like Appalachian into the Piedmont a bit. Uh, Do they, they get down
2: to Ontario. Yeah, I should know this. Yeah, I was gonna say
1: it's almost in your neck of the woods. It's or,
2: probably like two plants. You know, it's sort of like the, you know, Point Peely has the cacti. <laughs> it's, it's got like you know, um, the the prickly pear, and there are these tiny oh, little, yeah. tiny, tiny, you know, microscopic cacti on the edge of the beach, and you're like, "There you go, Canada's eastern Canada's only cactus," and you're like, "That's it." <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I don't know, I don't, I don't know how many Louisiana water thrushes there are nesting in in southern Ontario, but I'll bet you that's where the pawpaw is.
2: Yeah, they're they're uh, they're around.
0: It's pretty cool. We have a pawpaw festival just down the street from here. Oh, man, might have to do but that. Honestly, I've not been. To, there's actually, I think there's a pawpaw festival somewhere in southern Ohio that um, a friend in D.C. drove over to it. And they were passing through town a couple years ago. And it sounded even cooler than the festival here. Um, it sounded like more of a hippie festival. <laughs> it Sounded pretty fun over in Ohio. That's more outdoors um, crowd,
2: yeah. No,
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yeah, I uh, I haven't haven't yeah. been, but I love Paul no. Paul's custard apple
1: yeah. is another custard like apple. in that in that. That group. Oh. If if mm. folks don't know what it tastes like, it's like if you if you kinda mush if you like smushed a mango and a banana together, mm. that's that's kind of what the flavor's like. Some people do not like pawpaw. Like my mom thinks it's disgusting that we're trying to do this. She thinks like, you know, we should be run out of town. She really she is she is anti-pawpaw. Um so we
2: we have our festival here is a pumpkin festival in Hapoom Bay and this year. We had the world record heaviest pumpkin. I saw a ever. photo of that. <laughs> They're ugly, those big pumpkins. But yeah, but not pretty. Big. No, there, there's also a prize for the prettiest pumpkin. That's that's you know that's fine. That hmm. looks that's better. Because kids <laughs> probably go away crying after they see the big pumpkin. <laughs> this is awful. What have you done <laughs> to the pumpkin? I mean, you messed it up. Um, about Papa though, it's the name, like. Um, Indigenous, like a native you know, name, or is it, or is it something else? That,
1: I have always assumed that it is a native name. Um, let's see.
2: I feel Do, like I want well, to they, try this. They, you know one what? of the things they say is
1: that they think it derives from the Spanish papaya oh, because the there's superficial papaya. similarities.
2: So you had like a Spanish guy who stuttered. Yeah, maybe. He was pointing to the pawpaw tree and then
1: it is a very <laughs> fun name, I must say. I think it's very it's very fun to talk about pawpaw. People paw-paw. People it it people raise an eyebrow, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's cool, like big native fruit right near here. The, the seeds are really big. I think it's a tasty thing. I did have some uh, a friend of mine made some pawpaw pudding. Um you know, we've discussed some of my um less preferred foods in the past on this podcast. I would say that it, it is a rare pudding that I find enjoyable. Um, and so it was more or less with the pawpaw pudding. I, you know, it was it was okay, but it wasn't I'd rather eat the fruit itself. And I can I can imagine that pawpaw ice cream would be very, very, very good. But um, I'm generally pretty anti-pudding. And uh <laughs> this is not this is not where I, this is not where I would go with the pawpaw.
2: I like how George has stances on food. No mm-hmm. kidding. It's interesting. Uh, has anybody like made like beer infused, you know, sort of like uh local IPA with a little <sighs> pawpaw.
0: That sounds I, amazing. I like I that P- I pawpaw sour.
2: Yes. <laughs> That's a good idea. I feel like that needs oh, to that happen. Seems like it would work because if you're mm. telling me it has a little papaya-ish kind of fruity, you know, more mango, I more mango, mango I would more say. Man- or yeah, mango, okay, yeah, mango, mango, yeah. Sounds sounds like it could work. Somebody, somebody, do this. It's oh, brilliant. I like that a lot.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah. I had pineapple in my fried rice a couple of nights ago, and thought about you both. Oh God, Molly.
2: I don't know. That sounds good. I, I worry about you that sometimes. Sounds good. Got to try things. I don't know. Got to get out of your comfort zone, George.
1: Well, that that would that would succeed in that goal.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Discomfort, George. Mm. I like pineapple too. I just think there's there's opposite of curious, George. You're like the (laughs) 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 not so curious George. Like, stay away, George. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah where were we
0: i don't know i'm thinking about pineapple now
1: yeah well um (laughs) alvaro what have you been seeing besides rose-breasted grosbeaks
2: so what has been exciting around here and i won't talk that much about pelagics because they've been very exciting and i think i've talked a lot about them throughout the season but this year we had this, and we may have talked about it earlier, that there was a movement of Clark's Nutcrackers out in Montana or somewhere that was like birds were just streaming out from the north and from the mountains. And this Clark's Nutcracker thing, just it had the, the inkling of these birds are going to go everywhere because they have no food. And then we started getting signs that they were landing in parts of California where they shouldn't be, including um, eventually Monterey County, which is south of us. And the thought was like, oh boy, like they're within reach of us, you know, these these nutcrackers. And uh, for some reason, um, one day here that had a really good sort of migratory push, but also sort of east winds some of the, the folks were in San Francisco where, were just watching for migration from the north. And they, they had nutcrackers that day in the morning and they posted them. And I said, I'm going to go up to the ridge right above, kind of above my house and went up there, actually got, there were three of us that ended up up there watching this just movement of all sorts of stuff. Um, we had all, all of the goldfinches, including Lawrence's land. <sighs> Yeah, you know, one, they landed right beneath us, and siskins, Red Cross bills, hundreds of mantle pigeons, tens of, you know, fairy thrushes. And I was looking the other way, and it came right at me, like, boom, a Clark's Nutcracker. Mm. Right over, and all three of us got to see it. And apparently, it may be the first documented record, you know, with with some evidence. For our county, and uh, we feel like it's just the start of this winter invasion. And I heard there was one in Wisconsin?
1: Yes. Yeah, there was one did in there? Wisconsin, and it looks like another in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, there's been you a few.
2: Everywhere. And yeah. My thought, actually, with the way it happened originally, is that the ones that we saw that day were coming in from the south. Like, they'd actually head, they went down south in the mountains California, crossed— in the mountains, the transverse mountains, sort of an LA area. And then they started filtering northwards, almost like, you know, water filling up, you know, the, the, the low points, these nutcrackers just filling up montane areas all over the west, looking for food. And um I just think it's sort of the start, and we're gonna find nutcrackers in in there been there's been one in Yuma, Arizona, down in the desert somewhere. Just crazy. They're just a huge, not unprecedented, but one of the first in modern times, real movements of Clark's Nutcrackers with Mm -hmm. some pinion jays also moving well out of their range. So food is scarce somewhere. So I was really excited to be, I don't know, just made that call of like going up there and only three of us. And we all just had an amazing view of, of this Clark's Nutcracker flying over, just legend, you know. Hmm. Boom! Yeah. <laughs> Such a cool bird.
0: It, yeah. yeah, it's a great bird for that experience too.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> not a like least flycatcher. I mean, with all due respect, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like this gaudy thing with white, and big long beak, and wow. It was a still. I mean, I I did my heart went crazy. Like it started racing when got one of those adrenaline rushes bird yeah, just incredible. Like I felt like I was on a drug or something. It hmm. was, I'm on, I'm on birds right now. It was, it was so <laughs> exciting. I think the buildup of the, the potential we were all talking about it, you know, this could be our day and then it was our day. I just couldn't believe it. Like, what's the chance of that, you know, happening. It's just luck. <laughs> Man, that's awesome!
1: Be, it'd be cool if they go if we got a few more in the east uh, or you know towards the east. Um,
2: yeah. yeah, have 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 there been um, southern, eastern, or eastern eastern records? I mean, I imagine they've gotten to northwestern Ontario at least, but
1: uh, yeah, they they have gotten into. Northwestern Ontario, it looks like. It looks like there's a Southern Ontario record. Um, And, yeah, near Detroit, Alice Street, Essex. Um, Aside from that, now I'm looking at what look like a couple different Alabama records. Really? Um, Let's see what these are. One near Talladega National Forest from 2002. In May, well, it was April and May of 2002, seen and seen and photographed by folks. Um, that's a tough one to explain. Um, and then there was another one in Alabama in 2019. Hmm. Aside from that, pretty Spartan east. Anywhere in the east, like yeah. there's none east of the Appalachians in Ebert.
2: That. I think there's a, there's theories, well, there was one clear-cut thing, that they, they have no food, so the cone crops, whatever they rely on, and I don't know exactly what trees they rely on, must be empty. But there's another theory, too, that maybe in the previous winter, in some parts of their range, the snow levels were so high that they may have lost a lot of their winter cash. So whatever they hid in the fall was just not available to them. because it was unprecedented how much snow there was so there might be like a two two situations kind of perfect storm that created this but i i don't know if any of it is true i just sort of makes logical sense uh, once i heard about it and red breasted nuthatches they've been moving south the red cross builds have been kind of going a little haywire this year moving south there's Mm -hmm. There've been other things that are cone-related that have um, have moved south or out of the Rocky Mountains somewhere. So I would be if I was on the East Midwest to East, I'd be kind of just have an ear open for something that sounds rather weird mm-hmm. to your local <laughs> ears, like a nutcracker would.
1: Yeah, West Got Virginia
2: it. sounds like the place. Yeah, I it's true know.
1: actually, right?
2: Yeah. Could be, yeah. Like I'm in those white pines.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think this could be the year. West Virginia has had a ton of first state records and birds with few state records. It's been really, really fun here over the past couple years. It feels like the birding community is really building and getting more avid and excited, and just communicating more. And it's it's a lot of fun to go out and look for stuff here right now. And talk to folks about it. There's a lot of people excited and tracking things down. We finally got a Limpkin. That's been the news. Yeah. So. I don't know if
1: you guys saw there was, there was a Limpkin that was photographed by a non-birder in their yard about five, seven miles from my house about three, four days ago. (laughs) Like walking on the, on the ground
2: in their yard. Like. Wow. It's One of those
0: rest stop Limpkins.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. if, if you hadn't filled your, you know, gotten rid of your lawn and put in all those native plants, you too might have a <laughs> <community>. <laughs> I need
1: That's to get the really apple funny. snail pond going, yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: <sighs> yeah, I'm you ready can- for winter birding. Let's see what we get. It's not even November yet. It's about to be a good month to find some stuff.
2: Yeah, it's my favorite time of year. Late October mm-hmm. through the end of the year. I love it. I got a stealth vagrant um, story that I was not involved in, but, you know, heard about it that in Monterey County, they have um, the Salinas water treatment plant, which is not open to the public. Like you have to get a permit. So as a birder, if you live there, you can get this permit and go to this water treatment plant, but you can't just have anybody go there. You have to have the paperwork done. And somebody found a juvenile common ring plover out there, right? Which is looks very much like a semi palmated plover. It's a tough pull, and uh, yeah, yeah, really tough, tough find. And then um, that I forget exactly like is it the same afternoon or the next day? Other birders went looking for common ring plover, and found a second one wow. in the same pond that was an adult. And then they were actually able to see both, <laughs> photograph both, and record, or at least hear both to make sure that they were common ring plovers. And the thought, the thought, you know, sort of the talk was like, if two can be in one pond, an adult and a juvenile, do you know how many of these are in the US or Canada that nobody is seeing? Yeah. And it's like, it all opens your mind to the. I ADL, think there were like really looking carefully. I
1: think there were two found in New York this year, if I remember
2: right. Really? I think so. Oh. Yeah. Incredible! Incredible!
0: Yeah. When was that, Alvaro?
2: I want to say it was like two weeks ago. Oh, okay. Something like that? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I know that the second one. I forget who found the first, but the second one, Steve Tucker, was one of the birders who was there. And uh, he was with another birder, but I I forget who it was, but he was telling me part of that story. And, uh, yeah, so many, so many ber- birds out there that are. That Fly right them. under the radar. Right. And, oh, gosh, another cool story from Monterey. A broad-billed hummingbird is seen in Monterey County, very rare, right, you know, away from in California. And they saw that it had a band on it and they could read the band and it had been banded a few days earlier at at Marin County in California by the by the Point Reyes people at Point Blue folks so it it had actually moved within the state same bird young male and went south from its original point of being found It's one of the few sort of vagrants that have been tracked in some one way or the other. I thought that was pretty neat, Mm. especially a hummingbird. You could read a band on a hummingbird, you know. So, yes, things are happening in Monterey. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think the, uh, I was just looking at the common ring plovers. looks like there's two different ones, I think, found on Fire Island, if I've got this right. Pretty bizarre. It does. That's one I've always... I think we've all thought, man, those things are flying under the radar. I would love to find one. There's a spot in Jersey where I'm like, man, I have seen big numbers of semi-Plovers, and I just need to get there at the right time of year and spend some time.
2: Um, And you'll be famous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good stuff.
1: Molly, what are you seeing in West Virginia?
0: Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask me that because... (sighs) As much as I hate to say it, (laughs) I haven't been birding that much lately. I've just been working a lot. We were both in
1: Cape May last week. That's
0: right. So, yeah, yeah, the the most hours I've put in birding lately were over a long weekend in Cape May. And, yeah, besides hanging out with you, I kind of stuck to birding on my own each morning because I just haven't been birding. And that sounded great. So uh, that worked out really well. Man, Cape May. someone was asking me um, who wasn't from the U S why birders come to Cape May because there aren't um, like unique birds to see there, species wise. And it's, it's just gotta be a place that you have to experience to understand what it's like to see the, the number of birds. And of course there's all sorts of things that you can find that are extremely rare there, but just the, i've not felt birds in the same way that i have there um just like the the number of merlins and sharpshin hawks and cooper's hawks and how
1: about that that tree swallow flock
0: and yeah that's what i was gonna say the tree swallow i don't know that's probably the craziest singular bird experience that i've felt um Yeah. After George and I had hung out, we were just meeting up with folks for lunch back at the convention center and it was kind of storming off and on. And there are, I mean, literally tens of thousands of tree swallows. I know a lot of folks have seen these pictures, but man, I I just pulled over as rain was hitting and they all came down on the beach for a few (laughs) minutes and was just standing in an absolute swarm of them. It was so, so cool.
1: Yeah. You hit it just right.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad I pulled over. I got soaked. I it just dumped rain, <laughs> so it was totally worth it. That was amazing.
1: Yeah, Kristen yeah. hit that flock last year at the festival. Sort sort of similar to you, she ended up but wa- walking by herself in the dunes, and they just kind of every now and then they start to get kind of low in. I don't know if they're picking off bugs in the goldenrod or if that you know they actually can eat the fruits of those. Uh, wax myrtle bayberries um or you know i'm i'm not sure what they're doing exactly but they and then they just start swirling It's sort of these like cascading swirls mm-hmm. and it's just i mean yeah thousands of them yeah. and she like can't stop talking about that experience still to this date and um we saw that group of birds I think just before you did, but they were still a little bit higher up. They hadn't quite yeah. come down and um yep. and then we got honked at actually because we were somebody honked. Did at you? Us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well we were stopped at that stoplight. You were in front of me. Yeah. And I was looking behind me. And it, it looks like a tornado touching down or yeah. something as like they start like spiraling. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I was wondering if you all uh were looking at it too yeah, and I, then yeah, I pulled over.
1: I took a little bit of video, but it was not. It was not the not quite the 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 situation you had, which was nuts.
2: You, yeah. you should get like a honk if you like tree swallows bumper sticker.
1: <laughs> For
2: a minute, I thought it was That'd be Molly. So appropriate <laughs> there. I was like Molly, just honking us. Has she seen these tree <laughs> swallows? And then just friendly wave to them. Yeah, me too. We we also love tree swallows. He's like, you no, know, I'm, I'm honking because I want you to get
0: out of the way. Oh, uh, yeah. Nah, Kate May's pretty great. Just seeing. Uh, you know, so much duck variety and shorebirds and whatnot. And it was super windy, but it was otherwise pleasant to be out. It wasn't like looking for ducks here as it will be in a couple months and freezing rain across the big lake and just looking at a small handful typically. So I really got my fix last weekend. It was awesome. Yeah, that's
1: nice. We overlapped there for a night. We had three Mm -hmm. nights down there and, um, Yeah, it was like nothing crazy, but just nice migration, you know, Um, and just a nice place to be with a great bunch of people The I really enjoyed going to the kickoff night of the festival, uh, which is a festival folks should, if you haven't been, would be well worth doing. It's October's peak migration in Cape May and and the festival, there's a bunch of just fun, interesting people. Uh, around. And then you got all the birds and, and the, the bird walks and, and the exhibits area. Um, a really good time, but it was, it was like, it, it was like, I had not been to, you know, many other festivals recently. And I was like, man, there's a lot of people here. Like I haven't seen in a long time, a lot of, a lot of cool booths to check out artists and optics and all sorts of stuff. So, and COA, uh, was actually sponsored the kickoff party. So, COA Sport Optics. So, I saw our buddy Jeff Bouton there and Frank and a bunch of bunch of other folks. So, um, it's good to see the COA team there, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I uh, swung by in the convention hall. Another thing, too, at these festivals, um, the... Vendor areas typically are open to the public and there's a lot of things that you can just get in and see. So, um, if you ever happen to be in the area, even if you're not registered for the festival, you can still get a taste of all of this. Um, but a a lot of the folks, like, I think actually the majority of vendors that were at this festival I've worked with in one way or another for Nighthawk. Uh, so this is a great way for me to just go meet with people in person and sit down and talk about marketing projects and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up on this podcast, first off, um, one of the vendors there was Laura Wolf, who is such a fantastic artist. I brought a piece of her art home, um, that are like, fantastic puns. Um, did you look at her stuff, George? She had a whole wall of just puns and art. And I don't she was I selling that. all the originals. Oh, wow. I, uh, I don't have mine within arm's reach, but it's a solid owl that says like, I came, I, and then there's a picture of the solid and then it says I conquered. Um, so that's going to go up in the cabin. I spent a long time choosing which one to get. They're such uh, very, very entertaining. Nice. But um, chatting about this and that, Laura and I were talking about um, somehow birding hotspots came up and just the conversation of like, if you're visiting this place, what's it like to visit these different hotspots, that sort of thing. I think we were talking about it because I was saying something to the effect of there are so many people that know their way around Kate May um I'm not one of those people I've only been there a couple times so I don't actually know like which hot spots to go to beyond the main ones and you know there are tons and tons of hotspots if you just look at eBird and they all have a high species count so it's really hard to tell like which ones are the ones that have good parking areas and a little trail or that sort of thing so I think that's how we got started talking about it. But my, my point of all this is that the conversation came up that there are all these individual or small-scale efforts to write about this kind of stuff for birding hotspots. Like, what's it like? Where do you park? Are there trails? Is uh, you know this part off limits? That sort of thing. I've had this conversation with a few folks. West Virginia Statewide Brooks Bird Club is kind of looking at doing something like this and pulling together just Information that complements eBird data on how to get to different hotspots in the state. And recently, I think on Red Pulling, someone shared this birdinghotspots.org, which is a website that's doing just that. And it's totally worth checking out. You can contribute to it. I sent it to you guys before this. So mm-hmm. I think yeah, you got looking to take at it a now. look. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. We, It
1: says discover tips, descriptions, maps, and images for thousands of eBird hotspots, birdinghotspots.org.
2: Really, we have really. a similar thing just for our county. It would be great to almost see if we could roll it all together somehow without losing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I guess, some control over, you know, because folks here spend a lot of time putting this one together. But it would be great to get it out in a central repository if you want to call it that that'd be cool very useful
0: it is I've seen this come up on like probably the eBird Facebook support group that sort of thing like I see folks ask for this sort of feature within eBird sometimes and it makes sense to me that it's not there like that's not eBird's purpose so to speak but it also makes sense that it should exist somewhere else and that you should know like which which counties or which areas do have this sort of information and that sort of thing
2: yeah, and and then the rare bird kind of alerts often or somebody reports something they always have this assumed knowledge of what how you go to this spot or what you do and for a newer birder I know they there's that idea of like I don't want to ask somebody how how's this work what's this place like so it would be great to have this place where you could just check it out yourself and then make your plan on how to visit
1: it's cool too it's Mm -hmm. got interactive maps where you can click on a county or a state and see all the hot spots there Uh, some of them even have imagery of the site itself nice
0: yeah i think it's really cool yeah one way or another the information's really helpful even um, my last morning, I went over to Higby Beach in Cape May, which is a very popular place. There were lots of groups there. Uh, I was really thankful that there were also a couple of the birding, uh, the festival, like field trips were out because there were people walking through fields. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that field was part of this. I didn't know I could go over there. <laughs> so yeah. that sort of information is really helpful. I think about that a lot in these parts.
1: It was funny yeah. to me also, Molly, that during, as a little aside here, during the festival, um, Molly and I were like trying to figure out where to meet up. So me, her, and Kristen, I was like, oh, let's go to the Beanery, you know. And I was like, there'll probably be some other bird walks going on. It's festival weekend, and we got there, and it's what like ten in the morning or something on the Friday of the festival weekend. Mm-hmm. If you look at that hot spot, I don't remember where it ranks nationally, but it's probably <laughs> it's probably pretty high. Uh, I was like, this is like one of the best. Birding hotspots, you know, on in the country. Really, it's you know, it's 10 a.m. on the Friday of the festival weekend, and we were the only three people there. Um, which was you know, it was just funny. It shows goes to goes to show you can go someplace that's really great for birding sometimes, and still kind of have the place to yourself at times.
0: Yeah, which granted says it's restricted access on eBird and. There Which is it, some sort of restriction there, right?
1: That's true. That it's, uh, And I think this was not well enforced until recently. But if you have a New Jersey Audubon or a Cape May Bird Observatory membership, one or the other or both, it's free access. Otherwise, you're supposed to get one in order to be able to access that area. I don't know how strictly it's enforced, but that is... Mm-hmm.
0: See, this is why we need this website. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, it was really fun to catch up with so many people. And like you said, festivals are great just to meet a lot of really awesome birders and friends that you end up seeing, you know, a couple times a year or less. So that was all really fun this weekend.
1: Hey, another thing I wanted to raise that we were kind of talking about was that there's been a lot of talk about... Audubon National Audubon Society, John John James Audubon's "quote unquote" legacy, Um, and now, um, you know, National Audubon has declined. I believe to change their name for the time being. Uh, We'll see if that if they stick with that. But there are a number of larger Audubon state, I think, and local chapters across the country that are changing their names. And three of the larger ones, including Detroit, I think Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, all announced that they will be called the Bird Alliance moving forward. And um, it sounds like there may be other uh, groups Audubon groups doing the same thing, which I think is, I think we're all thinking that's a pretty good idea.
0: Was this like a joint announcement? Did they make this plan together?
1: Um, I don't, I think, I think so, right? Like, um,
2: L- locally here, all, all the Audubons that are changing their names are doing it all independently to different names. even. Uh, well, yeah, they will, they're actually going through a, process of figuring out what name they want to use, but they're not necessarily doing anything jointly here anyways.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about the ones in the Midwest. They, it's, I think there were, I would guess there was some collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. just cause they're fairly proximal to one another.
0: Well, I asked this, for personal interest because I uh, have started having this conversation and the local Audubon chapter here, Mountaineer Audubon, is starting to talk about this. Um, and I said I would provide some input on it. And then I realized I don't actually know how clubs are going about this change. Is it continuing their affiliation with National Audubon? And what exactly does changing a name entail for these clubs? So um, I was actually maybe even before this episode comes out, I might post on Facebook and ask about this because it's also not easy to see who all has changed their name. So I've been trying to figure out like, has anybody put together some sort of blueprint on how to do this and outlined the reasons they chose to? I think
2: uh, as I understand it, you the the chapters are changing their names, and National Audubon is fine with that um, and they're retaining the the umbrella of National Audubon or and state Audubons. but um there hasn't been a go to as, as far as like what they're gonna these clubs are calling each other and as uh, I think Seattle first became Birds Connect Seattle. And then some of the other ones have now uh, become Bird Alliance. So Golden Gate Bird Alliance for the Golden Gate, Golden Gate Audubon here locally. There, there is some, I guess, thought that it'd be great for many of them to coordinate, coalesce around a a, a name mm-hmm. that means something that is kind of brandable. And my thought is right now that the Birds Connect didn't quite connect with a lot of people and, and the bird alliance seems to be the one that is catching on. Yeah. I mean, that's at least four.
1: Yeah. I like it too. And at least four major groups that have uh, signed on, it sounds like more, more moving that direction. Mm -hmm.
2: And, and keep in mind too, that there are some things, some organizations that are Audubons that are not part of Audubon, right? Oh yes. True. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. so I don't know. There's an know Audubon what vet
0: clinic down the road here.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh no! But even bird bird clubs yeah, like Mass yeah. Audubon and New Jersey Audubon aren't they independent? I think Connecticut too. Yeah,
1: those are independent. They're not. A, they're not. Uh, not a. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, some of them actually do kind of collaborate, uh, but some yeah. of them, are, like Mass Audubon, is completely independent, and New Jersey Audubon as well. Um, hmm. So yeah, be interesting to see how that all evolves.
0: Yeah, yeah
2: it's, uh interesting. What do you all like think about the gosh, you know, it's like we we decide somebody like Audubon had their time and maybe is not such a a great face for birding and we change the name of the Audubons and so forth. But there's a lot of people out there that say that, you know, with even their, the stuff they did and all the warts and mess, or whatever, they're still a historical figure of importance, and you shouldn't change the name to suit you know, current thought. Do you think there's any... Are we really rewriting history, or are we just not giving prime time to a certain person within our history? <laughs> you know how do you see all this? Because it's it's interesting to me. Like there's a lot of uh validity to a lot of arguments, even if you disagree with the person.
0: But mm-hmm. Ooh, big question. Yeah, there's a biggie. Um a couple thoughts I have on this. I think Audubon's a little tricky. Because I think in a lot of ways, it's not even... It's almost used as like an adjective or a common noun to describe something related to birds. Like that's become so entwined with with birding. And like this vet clinic, I'm not actually sure how they got the name Audubon. I don't know if that's a common thing or not. I don't think that's any homage to John James Audubon. Um, It's just, I'm assuming a, a choice that was made for... I don't know, maybe I'm wrong... But it's, it's not a bird, spe- it's like a small pet, you know, typical little vet mm-hmm. clinic. But yeah, so I, I do think that there's some nuance there in how the word specifically Audubon is used. Um, what I do think as in sort of general terms is that education and understanding of the implications behind a name is really important. And I don't know how you keep the name Audubon in a bird club while ensuring that you are providing that educational aspect. Like, and I'm not just talking about a page on the website that has some acknowledgement of this, but like really understanding the implications of it. So that's kind of where I come to the conclusion that removing the name, it is a valid way to do that. and. And in that, that's your opportunity to educate on why. Yeah.
2: There's like so many figures within the history of ornithology that have been forgotten. Um, And we chose to have a few of them be remembered. And I I do feel like still, if you're interested in the history of ornithology, all of those forgotten names are still there. and all, all of the minor mm-hmm. players and major plays are all still there. You can go look that up if that's your thing, but should we re- have somebody rise to sort of in a, you know, superstar level given that they have a lot of complex and really um, difficult history that that's the part where I think, yeah, I mean, you're not erasing history. The history still all still there. Nothing has changed. You just aren't, elevating this certain one person or two or three or whatever they are. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I agree with that.
1: And we know more now, you know, like I think not everybody knew everything about James Aldabama. Well, you know, not that we'll ever know everything about any figure from the past, but like some of the work that's been done by Dr. Matt Haley and others, um, have shown that not only does he have a questionable history um, you know in terms of enslavement and and uh, you know he also was fraudulent in his work. Um, so once that those things are exposed and made public and understood really widely, I think it's tough to maintain that name as,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and, and still maintain credibility. Um,
0: I, yeah, know. I think exactly that. And I think that's why the removal of the name brings that into the conversation to really make that publicly known, as you said. So I, I don't see how you achieve that level of awareness without removing the name. Yeah.
2: yeah and, and the, the idea that a society about birds, you know, has to be named after a person, too, um, is rather than a region or, or a bird itself or, you know, the Paw natural history society, which sounds a lot better than, you know, Bob's, <laughs> Bob's, <laughs> Bob's pawpaw History, Yeah. Yeah. Something.
1: <laughs> one, one of the interesting things, um, I saw a talk by Dr. Matt Haley at uh, the Academy of Natural Sciences last week, and it was a really fantastic talk that he has actually given for the uh, Wilson Ornithological Society. And it was about Wilson. Alexander Wilson largely hailed as the, you know, the father, the quote-unquote father of American ornithology. And Matt, you know, I hope that this talk, I think it's actually available for people to go back and look at. This was – this particular talk was a collaboration between the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, Trexel University, and the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club. And uh, I think it is available for people to see still, and it's possible the Wilson uh, Ornithological Society one is as well. But at any rate, you know, Wilson Ornithological Society invited Matt to give a talk about Wilson. Um, And I think they were really uncomfortable uh, with – you know, knowing, know, you know, with sort of initially what this talk was about, but it, it was Matt's talk was largely focused on how Wilson really wasn't the first uh, ornithologist, you know, and 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 that there were actually a number of people involved, um, in, including a black man that helped him tremendously that never really got much credit, and also, uh, and you know, women, and you know that it really was a collective uh, that. You know, it's not one person typically, right, that does this. It really is a collective. It's a it's a group, right? It takes a village, so to speak. But one of the interesting things I thought was that um, the the guy that he worked with um, – oh, geez, I'm blanking on his name right now uh, – Charles Wilson Peel, who I believe founded the Academy of Natural Sciences – and had and and which I think is the longest, oldest natural history museum in the country.
2: He he, des- he, he described the peel um, pattern in storm petrels, huh. which are all the stripy storm petrels. They yeah. were called peleai forms. Huh? I did before they were so New Zealand, and all these things are being split. There was he he said there was this. He thought it was a I think an anomaly, and it was called the. Peel's Hmm. anomaly or something like something weird. Wow. Anyway, Peel.
1: Yeah. And there's a Peel's form of the peregrine falcon as well. I think those are about the only things that are actually named after him. But, um, at any rate, an interesting character himself, but he all like, you know, this is going back to what, uh, early 1800s, late 1700s or whatever. And, and even back then, you know, as a, you know, one of the early natural historians, of the U S he was very much against the idea of naming these animals after people. Uh, So, you know, there, there's a lot of people say, well, this is what it's always been named or, you know, and like, as we know, the one change is constant. The one constant is, sorry, is change. Uh, And, but if you even look back at somebody else who you could argue was the, the first ornithologist, in in the U S or the father of American ornithology that, you know, you could argue that, that, that Peel was that not Wilson. And he was actually against the idea of naming birds after people. So this is not in and of itself necessarily a new idea that, you know, um, and, you know, in that case, we're talking about species rather than organizations, but I think you get the idea.
2: Yeah, it's, It's a a complicated and interesting facet of the history that we're living right now in, in birds. And one of the things that I learned relatively recently was that birds are highly unusual in the proportion of the names that are named after people. Like if you look at insects or other critters, the proportion named for people is much lower. And... A really interesting pattern is that within North America, more birds in the West are named for people than birds in the East because of the expansion to the West by settlers and essentially wanting to give credit to people for these birds, birds that probably were known to the indigenous folks for thousands of years. Then they become, you know, so and so's. Warbler, whatever. Um, And I thought that was an interesting thing, too, that there are patterns even within the bird names that imply uh, expansionist, colonial attitudes of our past, you know.
1: We've talked a lot about Hawaii as well. And I think some of the most fascinating, fun, and interesting names are those Hawaiian bird names. They're so distinctive and cool and, and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I just I'd love more stuff like that.
0: Are there a lot of indigenous names on record for continental birds?
2: For North American birds?
0: Yeah. Like Hawaiian birds, the names are so preserved.
2: Right. Um, I think there's
1: there's a couple of birds that have Guarani origin, right? Um, well,
2: in, in, you mean in South America, but yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, there, one of them is are. Sora. I think Sora is a guarani word, but I remember right. But Sora? But that's a North American bird.
1: Well that's what I'm saying, but I think that's an example of a North American bird with a guarani.
2: Um But Guarani is from South America. How would that make sense? I, I
1: okay. don't know, but that was somebody had told me this. I I'm just repeating what I'd heard. So yeah, I could I'm, I could be incorrect about that. Yeah. And Soras I do, do know that Soras turn up in the West Indies.
2: Yeah, but that's that's well north of where that language group would have been.
1: Really? I thought that but, they they were Guarani in the West Indies.
2: No, no, that's Paraguay, northern Argentina, southern Brazil is is Guarani.
1: Okay. I stand corrected. Yeah.
2: Um but I do know there's like a there are things like Igreta Thula THULA right is the snow egret. Thula was it's like a misidentification like they 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 named thinking they were taking um a, a Mapuche native word for the egret but it, in fact it was the word for swan. <laughs> they misidentified <laughs> the the bird somehow and then they stuck it on to <laughs> to that um there are some there there are definitely a lot of names that are indigenous in South America, like Jasana, I think is one of them and a lot of things. But I was thinking about North America, like what would be Sora. Sora is supposedly
1: an um evolved from a Native American language, but not not Guarani.
2: Oh, mm-hmm. that's cool. And you do wonder if like Kildeer might have because Killdeer makes no sense. If it might have come from an indigenous name that then was anglicized hmm. to yeah. to sort of make it make sense, in that two English words were involved, that seems like something that could be. Um, I'm sure we're missing a bunch of bunch of things here yeah. that, like, you know, pinion, pinion, maybe
0: mm-hmm. J. Even if they're not in use in the common name, like, it is, are there records of this, you know? Um,
2: yeah. I have no I think idea. think there are, like, actual names that are, are cataloged in, you know, in sort of First Nations names for birds. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. there are some lists. That'd be kind of interesting to check mm-hmm. them out. Yeah. And some of the European language names for our birds are really interesting, too. Like if you look at Norwe, if you translate Norwegian names of our birds to English, some of them are way better than the ones we Mm. use.
1: (laughs) I often think the colloquial names in Central and South America are much more fun than. uh, Yeah, you know, like I I liked the, uh, was it white-lined tanager? I think is mal casado, bad marriage, because the males and the females look so different. (laughs)
2: <laughs> bad marriage yeah mal casado
1: yeah <laughs> or like the trabajador which is the uh the wren wren like rushbird, yeah, because it sounds like it's got a little hammer and it's just going tick 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 tick
2: yeah well this <laughs> reminds
0: me i've been on a big book buying binge lately uh i've got a huge sack but i've Got a bunch of books from Pelagic Publishing, and one is "Lapwings, Loons, and Lousy Jacks: The How and Why of Bird Names." Hmm. So I'm excited for this. Wow! One. Who,
1: I'm sorry, who is the author of of that one? Do you...
0: The author is Ray Reedman. Okay, interesting. And Pelagic Publishing is a UK-based publisher. Okay, um, that sounds yeah. juicy. Yeah, I'll let I you know mean, when I get to it.
2: Yeah, I bet "loon" is a name that has roots that go. Actually, you know, we think of loon as being loony, but maybe I bet it's it's kind of actually goes further back. Myrrh, hmm. that would probably be another one. Myrrh. I thought that was a French word. Um I don't know. Hmm. But it, it's not the name that's used in Europe for the bird, right? So right. It, it strikes me as
1: well. Yeah, guillemot would interest. be a French French word as well. So Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's like
1: yeah. This this is a this is a subject we need to delve into more deeply with a proper et, et- etymologist who's also an ornithologist. Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think there's an etymologist who's an entomologist as well? That would be wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> and an ornithologist and an auto yeah. laryngologist. Uh,
2: do you know? Do you know that's why it's called a spelling bee, right? Because the entomologist and the etymologist got together. No. Oh, Alvaro! <laughs> wow! No, no! Wow! Okay. I just thought that one up on the I'm, go.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say I'm kind of. am pr- I'm, yeah, I'm kind of proud and disappointed of you all at once. Here, It's was pretty good. Yeah, yeah.
2: I know. Sometimes there's a deep level of disconcern that you're like, "That was kind of really awful." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I don't know if we should put this guy in jail for that, mm. or kind of like. Yeah, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> but yeah. Well,
1: guys, I think we should scoot here pretty soon.
2: I I do have something to show you guys. Oh, um, you know, and Ryan Sanderson, you know, from um, great, Indiana, photog- great photographer. great photographer, great yeah. photographer, birder, great birder, good guy. Um, I guess he's in the records committee. So, so I guess some people probably don't think he's a great guy because whenever you're in the records committee, oh yeah. You're, you're <laughs> But look what – he went out on a boat trip, and look what he made for me.
0: <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> I
2: have my own Nostra Dumbass T-shirt. Wow. Ryan. Uh. And I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Believe it or not. Wow. You couldn't have predicted predict that. This one. Yeah. I could not have predicted this. Wow. Ryan, that's a thing of beauty. Really. I, you know, with that... the little, little birds on the bottom there, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fantastic we
2: have fans man
0: yeah
1: that is something else I'm kind of proud of that yeah sure. I was gonna say you uh-huh.
2: gotta wear that I mean you gotta I had to turn away because I, I was I was shedding a tear at the <laughs> I didn't want to start a boat trip with with that that level of emotion yeah
0: <laughs> wow <laughs> oh you gotta wear it on boat trips now
2: I know I know so <laughs> ridiculous amazing that was a great surprise i gotta say it just it was sometimes you you know somebody just does something they think it's funny but it actually is touching in how Mm -hmm. it kind of you know means that they're paying paying attention to all the silly stuff we do and we really appreciate (laughs) that
1: yeah i wanted to give a couple quick shout outs to some listeners i've had on my independence hall bird walks um Tyler from St. Louis uh, just happened to be in town and had been listening to the pod and knew, gave a look and saw that the bird walk was coming. So thanks for coming out to the bird walk. Also, Drew, uh, who was there last week, and uh, Rick, who was there this week. Thanks for coming to the Bird Place of America, as I like to call it, Independence Hall. Uh, we did a little tour around um, Independence Hall there. And one of the days it was real hot and sunny and there wasn't as much around. But then some other days there's been some migrants. So um, nice to have the opportunity to uh, do a little center downtown center city urban birding with friends there. So thanks to those who came out, as, as including uh, Lila as well, who I think came to all three walks. So that was cool wanted to give those shout-outs. Also, guys, we've we've got some different stuff coming up that I think we need to let folks know about, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, this is, we're winding down season three here. And I think this might be our last sort of roundtable, as we call them. And uh, there are several more episodes still to come. But I think for the most part, at least, they may be, a new situation where there'll be kind of one-on-one interviews where, or one-on-a-couple interviews where one of us interviews a guest or a couple guests about um, their experiences birding and get to know some different birders. So we're, go- we're kind of varying the format a little bit there, and that's something you can expect in the next uh, few episodes uh, before we probably will break to some degree for before season four. And we also have a Patreon coming uh, where folks can get a little bit more Lifeless to Burning Podcast if they are so inclined, right? So, those will be some fun stuff to look forward to.
0: Yeah. Probably first of the year we'll be rolling out some of this. So, keep an eye out.
2: Yeah. Hard to believe we're almost at the point. We're talking about the end of the year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Crazy.
0: Pretty wild. And season four of the Lifeless Podcast.
2: Wow. Yeah. Wild smokes. Yeah. It's felt more like ten years, but I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> <did> I just <laughs> no, I have some to. days. <laughs> trying to be jokey.
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> it has been super fun and rewarding for us. So thanks to uh everybody who's been listening. You guys have really made it fun. And yeah, we're looking forward to doing more. Uh Molly, anything you've got coming up that you want folks to know about?
0: Yes, I have a lot of things. Um, This episode should be coming out a few days before the Frontiers in Ornithology Youth Symposium in Delaware for youth ages 13 to 22 who are interested in careers in ornithology. So we talked about this a lot a few episodes back with Holly Merker. Um, And again, we do have just... Still a few spots left to fill. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Co-op. Um, we are in the middle of our nominations for new board members, actually. So that closes, um, I think, in a couple weeks. So um, the Birding Co-op, everything's on on the Birding Co-op's website. So you can look into that. And uh, exciting to see some things rolling there because there are a lot of Destinations that we want to build trips around and um, different types of co-op activities that are all starting to ramp up at once. And then tour-wise for um, both George and Alvaro, um, if a couple more spots sell in Cuba in December, I'll be helping out with that at Alvaro's Adventures. It's like 12 days, first part of December. And George, we've got spots on the Columbia Central Andes tour that is in early February. Um, So, yeah, check those out if you're interested in both. Can't wait to be there.
1: Excellent. Yep. Yeah.
2: Good stuff. Very good. Al, what about you, man? In a few hours, I'll be giving this um, workshop on sparrow identification. And then I'm doing another one. It's all part of. My membership site, Birding Your Best Life, Ducks in November, and then Pitfalls of Goal Identification in December. And I'm going to be trying to do these live sessions, um, hopefully monthly, apart from all the content that's there on the site, including you know forums and stuff. And it's kind of picked up steam recently, so I'm glad to see that. And I'm, I think it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to just a lot of the talks I used to do that I can do it through that site of mine, but it it is a membership thing. So you can check it out online.
0: Yeah. Wow. You have a lot of lessons uploaded now. I don't know the last time I'd looked, but when you sent the email that the goal course was complete, or like Uh what, 30 lessons on goals or something. It's a huge course.
2: It's huge. Never would have seen that coming. (laughs) It's uh, yeah. And the Raptors and the cool thing is like when you put it, when you put it all together as these like little uh, separate lessons within a big course, you you can actually upload a new version of each one. I haven't done that yet, but I have that in mind as I learn or do things. And you sort of like almost add to the class or change things as you go. It gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of the, you know, imagery, teaching, whatever. So neat thing.
0: It's really cool. There's so much information there. It's great.
2: (laughs) How about you, George? Yeah, well,
1: uh, given that we are closing in on the holiday season, I always like to remember to remind folks that these American Birding Association field guides to the states, um, I think, what have they got, 15 or 20 of those, but now, and Alvaro did the... ABA Field Guide to the Birds of California. I did the ABA Field Guide to the Birds of Pennsylvania. They are great little books. uh, And, I mean, it it was really a lot of fun to write these books, I must say. Like, coming up with, you know, fairly short, digestible descriptions of familiar birds um, was a really fun task. I would encourage folks to, uh, to check those books out. They make... They make good holiday gifts um, that are, you know, that are, they don't break the bank. Um, so, and they're good for neighbors. They're good for beginning birders, especially, uh, but really for anybody who likes birds. It's good to fill out a library. Uh, so, those are good. I also, of course, would encourage people to go take a look at the HillstarNature.com site. Uh, we do have a media section. And addition, in addition to the trips and tours, uh, we have a Hillstar News. Um section where there's a couple different articles, including one that I'm just posted about uh unpacking Columbia there's a lot of people out there that are interested in Columbia or have been once and are wondering about where their first or next trip should be in the country with the most birds in the world. Uh, I'm hoping that this will be a way that people can maybe wrap their head around and start to think about where to begin there. There's also my dad's book review section, my dad Harry Armistead has reviewed a number of new books. Well, not necessarily new, a bunch of new books, but also some older books, and there are more coming. So uh, recently he posted a review on The Turns of North America by Cameron Cox, which is a great photographic guide. There's also a review of the North American Flycatchers book, which we discussed here, The New Birds of Europe, third edition, which is a fabulous field guide as well. About and the whole first half of that book is really useful for American birders as well. A lot of uh, great stuff there. So anyway, stuff to check out. Um,
2: and yeah, and also you know, Dorian's book "Birding Under the Influence" is it's starting to show up in people's mm-hmm. mailboxes, and I've heard multiple people independently say it's actually they've enjoyed it. Or they've read it cover to cover on one sitting, kind of thing. My dad is reading uh, it right
1: now, and he sorry. he I spoke to him yesterday because he's going to write a review for our site for the book as well. And he said, "I'm loving Dorian's book." So,
2: yeah, it's he's even impressed us this Dorian. I know
1: who thought who would have yeah. known? Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> who would have known? Yeah.
1: He was <laughs> over here the other night to watch the Phillies lose with me. We that was good. I was I was glad I had some company for that one. It was a tough loss, but so. Anyway, we should run. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the feedback and the fun. Alvaro Molly, I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.